So I thought that it would be wise for me to start off by giving you a, a little introduction to who I am. Many of you don't know me. Uh, my name is Abe. My full name, I debated on whether I should say this, my full name is actually Abraham Lincoln Lee. So that makes it really easy for you to remember who I am. Um, I, I am the candidate for campus pastor here at Wicker Park. Um, over the next few weeks, I'll be spending time with your small groups in uh, small group town halls so that we can get to know each other more. And for those of you who are not in a small group, uh, my wife and I will be hosting a late lunch this coming Saturday. So if you cannot join your small group or you're not part of a small group, come by and we'd love to give you more details about that so you can get an opportunity to just chat, get to know each other. Um, my wife and I, her name is Suzette, we returned to Chicago after having lived in San Francisco for over 17 years. We moved here last fall, right before the polar vortex, so I'm happy to say that we survived that. I don't know why God created polar vortexes, but he did, and I'm happy here now. Uh, it's much warmer. My dad is a retired pastor. Uh, during my formative years, he pastored a church here in Chicago. It was on Foster and Kimball. It's since moved and changed names, but it used to be called the Korean Evangelical Church of Chicago, or in Korean is uh, Chicago Hanimbongkyeol. Um, and I don't know if he's here because the lights are right in my face, which is awesome. Um, but David Lee, or Anya's husband, he and I used to go to church together back in the day, if you know him. So uh, this was when we were little, a long time ago, because he's ancient. Um, but we, so <laughs> I, I can say that because we're very close in age. Um, so for over 10 years, that church served as the foundation of my family's community. Um, and then I left for college, and unfortunately things took a very ugly turn. Rumors started to spread, and some really hurtful things were said and done to my family. And so suddenly this church seemed to turn its back on my parents, on me and on my little brother. I saw my dad broken down to tears. I saw my mom enter into these moments of extreme psychosis. And I witnessed the church rip my family apart. And unfortunately, my family's never been the same again. And this community that I had leaned on for so long and for so much, suddenly they seemed to push me aside and I felt like they were leaving me for dead. And I, I came to despise the church. And I, I realize it's a harsh word, but it was how I was feeling from all the pain that they, I felt that they were causing in my life, in my family's life. And so I made a really conscious decision at that point in my life. I was no longer going to care about the church or about God because it didn't seem to care about me. And so for many years, I decided to live my life for myself. I did not care. I sought community and purpose and meaning in anything, in absolutely anything but the church. The story does go on, and I, I promise that I'll come back to it later in today's message. But you see, this was not God's design or intent regarding the church. 
God's design, God's intention is for his chosen ones, his children to experience gospel transformation through the church. And I want to talk to you a little bit about how this prayer by Paul points that truth out. Now, one of the things when it comes to preaching from the Word of God that I prioritize, and many pastors will do the same, is understanding context. Because context, especially when it comes to reading and understanding and applying Scripture, is essential. And taking in context, you need to consider a particular passage within the larger letter or book that it's sitting in. Context requires us to consider who was the original author. And in this case, this passage was the Apostle Paul. And who was that person? And some of you may know a little bit about the Apostle Paul from the other letters he's written. And context also requires us to look at who are the original readers? Who is the intended audience of this letter from the beginning? By taking all this context in, it allows us to, current, to be able to more accurately consider how to apply the Bible today in our context. So I want to start off a little bit on the context of this particular passage that Carolyn read for us today. So it's a little history lesson, starting with the city of Ephesus. Ephesus in the ancient days was the fifth largest city. It was also a port city. So as a large city and a port city, it had a lot of commerce and traffic. So a lot of financial opportunities there to succeed in business. And because there was so much traffic, you had a lot of exposure to a lot of different religions and faiths and, and cultures. It also happened to be a place where Greek philosophy dominated. So the Ephesians were a people who loved or sought after financial gain, uh, business opportunities. They were a people who wanted to integrate cultural experience and other religious experiences into their day-to-day -day lives. So there were many pagan rituals that included sexual rights that were incorporated into the day-to-day -day so that they could achieve what they believed self-actualization to look like. And part of that desire for growth and self-actualization included uh, attempts at understanding and seeking wisdom. As I mentioned before, Greek philosophy was so dominant in that place. Christians, or as they were called back then, followers of the way, they were a tiny, tiny minority in this place. And as I looked at and considered Ephesus and its history, to me, it sounds like a lot of major North American cities today, including Chicago. Another thing to consider from a context perspective is that this is a letter written by Paul, and he wrote it to small churches. He wrote it to small churches along the border, the countryside of Ephesus. So this was a letter written to small churches with little congregations, which sounds a lot like Wicker Park, but small churches with little congregations who were feeling so unimportant and insignificant in light of God's grand plan, especially because they were surrounded by pagans and non-believers, non-Jews, Gentiles around them. And so Paul, who wrote this letter, he wrote it to remind these Christians, these intended readers, that they must continue to count themselves as among the beloved of God. That God remembers them and God understands who they are and he has a plan and they are vital to God's plan for his glory. Another thing to consider from a context perspective is that Paul was writing this letter not only to 
remind the Christians to count themselves as among the beloved of God, but to remind them of how they became the beloved of God. In chapter 2, Paul reminds these readers that God, it was rich in his mercy, took them out, took us out of our broken relationship with him, and restored us as his adopted sons and daughters. It was because of his great love for us that he made us alive together with his one and only son, Jesus Christ. It was by God's grace that he raised us up. And it wasn't for anything that we deserved or did or said. It was all God. It was all because God looked down and said, you are my creation. You are my work mission. You are mine. Reading a little bit further, again, just understanding the context here in chapter 2, verses 14 and 16, Paul starts to describe this divine institution created by God for his glory, and he calls it the church. Chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in body, in one body, through the cross, and thereby killing the hostility. My wife, Suzette, um, who is really sorry that she can't be joining us here today, uh, She's in Singapore, as Pastor Chris mentioned, I think, a couple weeks ago. Uh, she's been there for a little over a month, caring for her ailing parents. And for those of you who are aware of her situation and have been praying for her, thank you very much. It's been, your prayers have really been a source of strength for her during this time, um, difficult time for her, uh, for both of us. But we've been involved with a ministry that's based in South Africa called Hands at Work. Uh, and for, over, for many years now, I've kind of lost track, but for many years, we will travel to Zambia to work with local pastors. I, I do some, we do some teaching and preaching there and encourage and support local Christians, and we, we call them care workers, local Christians who have dedicated their time, energy, and everything to caring for children who have been orphaned by the AIDS pandemic that continues to ravage the southern countries of Africa. Um, I'm going to step over here. I'm going to do a little shameless plug, okay? Uh, Suzette and I uh, and the Church of the Beloved has entered into a partnership with Hands at Work, and they've decided that they want to support a community in Zambia called Susu. So next year, Suzette and I will be leading a team, probably in March, to go. And so if you're interested, we've already started to form that team. If you're interested, come see me. We'd love to tell you more about the ministry over a meal. Stepping back over here, that shameless plug is over. So um, the very first time I went with Suzette to Zambia, and every time since then, as we're walking through the bush, walking through the communities, locals would point in our direction and start yelling out, Muzungu, Muzungu. Um, so Muzungu is a Bemba word. Bemba is the local language of northern Zambia. And it translates to white man. Now, I don't know if you realize I, I'm not white. I acknowledge that I'm extremely pale, and I blame the polar vortex for that. But ultimately, 
Not that I have a problem being called white. I, I love white people and black people and brown people. I love you all. Anyway, I, I turned to the, to the missionaries and the local long-term volunteers and I asked them, why, why do they keep calling me white man? And what they explained to me is this. In Zambia, if you're not black, you're white. For the people in the bush of northern Zambia, there are basically only two men, two groups of people. You're either a Mazungu or you're not a Mazungu. And for the ancient Jews, it was the same idea. There are only two men. You're either a Jew or you're not a Jew. You're a Gentile. But here's the thing. This divine institution created by God for his glory, the church, the body of believers redeemed by the grace and mercy of the gospel of Christ. It removes the two and creates one new man, one body united under one spirit. See, the gospel of Christ calls us to one hope in one Lord. It calls us to one faith, one baptism, one Father. And the divine institution created by God for his glory, this church, is, consists of no dividing wall. It includes a unified citizenry divinely gathered together for the glory of God. And if this is what church is, then take a moment and consider. Church of the Beloved in Wicker Park is a divine institution specifically created by God for his glory. And we were all called divinely to this place for God's glory. That's such an amazing... You know what, Maurice, you know what that means? It means that you were divinely called to this place to shout your words of affirmation so that we could be encouraged. It means that the worship team with Alex and Sammy and Q and Daniel, you were divinely called to this place so you could help lead the congregation in joyous worship of our King. It means that Hannah and Tuana, who I hope hears this online later, you were divinely called to this place to help us live out what Luke had written about in Acts, a church that welcomes one another so that we can have fellowship with one another and break bread together. It means that the AV team in the back including uh, Kevin and Audrey and Carolyn and in spirit, Moobs, who's also known as Peter, who's not here, so I'm going to use his nickname. It means that you were divinely called to this place to make sure that the gospel of Christ is literally heard by making sure the microphones work, even though all the other pastors can't help but touch the microphone and mess things up. So, this is the truth, that this is a divine... Wicker Park is a divine institution created by God for his glory. And we were divinely called to this place to be a part of this church, to be a part of this community, that's part of this family. All of this is just the context of the letter that Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. All this is what Paul has been sharing with the believers in Ephesus. And this is what Paul has been proclaiming when he suddenly has to stop and say, I got to pray. I need to pray for my brothers and sisters in Ephesus right now. Lord, hear my prayer. And this is the prayer we're going to look at right now. And I want to reread. Uh, Carolyn did a wonderful job of reading today, but I'm going to reread just verses 14 to 19 to start off. 
In chapter 3, verse 14, Paul prays, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And I have to tell you, there is so much truth and wisdom and beauty in these short passages that could be unpacked, but I promise it's not going to be that. I'm going to just focus on three truths. Three truths that I think are applicable to us as a body of believers when it comes to understanding God's intent and God's design for the church leading towards gospel transformation in each of us here today. So this letter to the Ephesians has two parts. The first chapters 1 to 3 is a presentation of the gospel and an explanation of the impact on individuals and the church of that gospel. It's the gospel story. The second half, chapters 4 to 6, is your story. Uh, It's an explanation of what transformation will look like to those who have been redeemed by Christ. And I mention that because I encourage you all, as you consider how to apply the scripture that we're reading today, in your personal devotionals or in your small groups, take the time to look at chapters 4 through 6. Dive into that to understand what transformation looks like. But today's passage... This prayer is Paul wrapping up the presentation of the gospel, the gospel story. And one of the things that he's doing in the presentation, after, at the end of the presentation of the gospel, is he's praying for us, he's interceding for us. And the first point and the first truth I'd like to point out is that this is a prayer by Paul for power. It's a prayer by Paul for the power to know and the strength to comprehend God's love through the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, Paul prays that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Verse 18, Paul prays may have strength to comprehend. In verse 19, Paul prays to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So, prayer in and of itself, is agnostic. In other words, all religions, all faiths, include some form or variant of prayer. It could be chants, mantras. Some form of prayer to someone or something. (coughs) Sorry. So I've had a chance um, to travel quite a bit around the world, partly because of my uh, job and also partly because Suzette loves to travel. Uh, I've been to India, Africa, throughout Europe, Asia, Australasia, um, North America, and Central America. And through those journeys, I've had the opportunity to visit many different houses of worship, many different faith worship centers, from Buddhist temples to Shinto shrines to Hindu mandirs. And there's been one common component in every single one of these places. Prayer. The form that it took was always different, but every faith prays. Every religion prays. Prayer, actually, if you look at it, prayer is such a central component uh, of 
religion that there have even been scientific studies done about prayer, about the power of prayer. There was an interesting one done back in 2000 in South Korea. It was a large cohort of women who were unable to get pregnant naturally. So they were going through in vitro fertilization and they found that the women who were being prayed for were twice as likely to get pregnant than the ones that weren't being prayed for. Um, interesting. Nothing really to do with our message today. I just read it. I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. Um, but I want to mention this partially because I think that's the type of prayer most people are familiar with. Prayers for situational change. Prayers for something in our circumstance to, to be adjusted. The thing is, the prayer we're looking at right now is different. And it's different in two ways. And the first way that it's different is essential. The second is important. And let's talk about that essential difference first. Paul prays, for this reason, I bow my knees to the heart before the Father. So the essential difference in Paul's prayer is who he's praying to. Paul is praying to the one and only God who can hear and answer prayer. Paul is praying to the Almighty, and he's calling him Dad. He's calling him Father. Okay, so I want to take a little bit of a tangent, if you don't mind. It's, I think it's relevant. Because in verse 14, Paul starts the prayer by saying, For this reason I bow my knees. And I want to take this tangent because when I first started preparing for today's message, I almost passed over that phrase, I bow my knees. And the reason I did is because in my context, in my world, the image of one bowing to pray on their knees is not unusual. You might have seen um, or pictures or maybe you have family with, with little children where they'll bow at their bedside and pray their nightly prayers. Or you may have seen other religions that include, incorporate kneeling for prayer. So it's not unusual in our context to bow. But this is where the original reader's context becomes really important because for the church in Ephesus, for the Ephesians, they would have been very familiar with the typical Jewish posture of prayer, which is standing and looking up. And it's crying out to God, listen to me, God, I'm right here. So when Paul prays, for this reason, I bow my knees, he's being exceptionally intentional to say, I am coming in a humble submission. And he's reminding the readers of examples in the Bible of bowing on one's knee to pray. Like King Solomon, who had been commissioned by God to build a temple. On the day of dedication, he calls all of Israel together. And as he's praying to dedicate the temple, he suddenly realizes this building is so unworthy of God's enormity and magnificence. And he's on his knees, humbly crying out, the king of Israel, the king of God's chosen one, is suddenly in humble submission to the king of heaven and earth. The other image that's likely in the head of the Ephesians when Paul prays, for this reason I bow my knees, is of Christ himself at the Garden of Gethsemane before he's about to be dragged away to be crucified. 
Jesus Christ is on his knees, on his face, crying out, God, your will be done. I obey you. But please, if you don't mind, I'd rather not be tortured and crucified in such a horrific way. This is the image of bowing that Paul is bringing forth. This is the picture that Paul is painting for the Ephesians when he says, for this reason, I bow my knees. I humbly bow before the God. Paul is praying to the God who knows all of his adopted sons and daughters. Paul is praying to the one who loves each and every one before time began. And Paul is praying to the God who hears. The King of kings, Lord of lords, the master of the universe, the creator of all things, and through whom all things are created. Paul is praying to this one humbly on his knees and calls him Father. And then realizes that this supreme being knows each and every one of us by name. From whom, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I will say that I know that I've introduced myself to many of you for the first time many times because I wish I were better at remembering names. Uh, I have, right now I'm actually trying to remember some names and I'm losing it all. So I, I wish I could remember names. I want to. It's not because I don't care. It's just because I have nothing in my head sometimes. But I may not remember your name, but our Father in heaven does. And not only does the master of the universe, the creator of all things, remember your name, he took the time to name you, to give you your name. This is the essential difference of Paul's prayer. Paul is praying to the one and only God who hears and answers prayer. The second difference in Paul's prayer, not as essential, but it's important to note, is this. Paul isn't praying for a situational change. You know, the prayers that we're more often used to, like, God, help me pass this test, or help me get this job, or help me find the perfect pet, whatever it is, we're used to those types of prayers. But this is different. Not, those prayers are not bad. Those are, there's nothing wrong with those types of prayers. I mean, Christ himself, when he was praying at the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying for a situational change. God, if you don't mind, I'd like to have this cup pass away from me. But Paul's prayer here is different. Because Paul is praying for the power to know, for power, for inner transformation, for the strength to comprehend, and the power, power to know. Paul is praying that the Christians in Ephesus and Christians today might be able to fully grasp the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love for us, of Christ's love for us, a love so deep that it led to an undeserved death by him. Gospel transformation or the creation of a new you, real transformation, transformation that results by being changed by the mercy of God, it's not something I can do on my own. It's not something that you can do on your own as much as we might try. Real transformation for real people requires divine intervention. 
And what this prayer is pointing out is that part of the divine intervention is the opening up of our heart and our soul and our mind to the enormity of God's love for us by his Holy Spirit. He wants us to understand that as the children's song goes, our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. Paul's prayer is for the power to understand that our God is so big that his love knows absolutely no bounds. So that's the first truth, is that this is a prayer for power to know God's enormous love for us. The second truth is that this is a prayer for us to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. In verse 19, the second half, Paul prays that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. One thing to note is that this is a really short prayer. And this is a, a, a testament to say that you don't always have to pray really long prayers for God to hear you. Short prayers are okay. But this is a really short prayer. And Paul prays that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. And because this is the, the apex, the, the crux of his prayer, Paul is praying that we might know the love of God so that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the purpose of his prayer. And as the purpose of his prayer, I think it behooves us. It's our responsibility to just take a moment to make sure we fully understand and comprehend what he intends to say when he says, you must be filled with all the fullness of God. And I want to look at that by considering two verses right now. One is a little bit before today's passage and one is within today's passage. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, Paul writes, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then in verse 17, Paul prays, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So experiencing and being filled with all the fullness of God is to become a dwelling place for God. I want to use a story to illustrate this, I hope, a little bit more completely. Um, when we lived in San Francisco, we had friends uh, staying with us for a, a bit, like a week. It was our friend, her husband, her mother, and her two very active, very active twin boys. They were like 18 months old, two years old. Um, now, God's seen fit to make it such that my wife and I, we can't have children, um, which is a story for another day. So as a result, I'm not necessarily really adept at handling little ones and toddlers. Not that I don't like them. Eventually, they will grow up, and I'll be able to have a conversation with them. But, you know, it is amusing to me. There are some parents who really believe that it is their job to teach me how to care for a child, I think partially in the hopes that I might care for their child. Um, and so they say, hey, hold our baby. And this is my typical posture of holding a child until at which point they feel that this is extremely awkward and they will finally take the baby back. I just don't know how to deal with it. It's not that, okay, anyway. Um, another thing God's blessed me with, and I consider it a blessing, is I have a bit of OCD. OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm not actually diagnosed with OCD. I just, I just really appreciate cleanliness and order. Um, when you come to our home, you will note that the home is typically quite orderly and clean. 
Um, and you'll see it, and Suzette will point at me and say, it's his fault. It's just something, I, I don't care about outside our home, in the home. I just like it a little orderly. And I'll, I'll clean it, not because I know people are coming over. I clean it because I know I'm coming over. And I'm just happy with, happier that way. Now, when you come, just so you know, don't feel that you have to live up to that standard because as part of this blessedness that I have, I love cleaning. So when you leave, leave a mess and let me clean. It's just my joy. I'll be singing praise songs as I'm going along. It's going to be a wonderful thing. Anyway. All right. You got it, Maurice. Um, suddenly, our home became the dwelling place of these two rambunctious twin boys. And I and our home experienced and was filled with all the fullness of twin boys. There was nothing in our home or around our home that escaped the fullness of these two twin boys. No room escaped, no bathroom escaped, the yard didn't escape their fullness, the neighbor's cat didn't escape their fullness, nothing escaped the fullness of these twin boys. Who knew that little boys, and for those of you, I don't know if your kid's a boy or not, but who knew that little boys could slobber so much and touch so many things and poo in so many different directions? It was unbelievable. We continued to experience the fullness of these twin boys even after they left. They left little presents for us in the fire, toys, not any other presents, in the fireplace, under the plant, in the drawers. I experienced all the fullness of these twins for a long time. Uh, as another aside, if the family of whom I'm speaking about happens to hear this message, note, I say this with love. We loved having you over. Come back again. Bring the boys. Bring your mom. It was so much fun. We'd love to have you back. Anyway, so Paul is praying that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is praying that we might become a dwelling place for God. Paul is praying that the God who is not limited by time, that the God who is not limited by space, the God who is not limited by knowledge, the God who is not limited in his love for us. Paul is praying that we might become the dwelling place of this God who is not limited, that all the fullness of this God might enter into our hearts, live in our innermost being, and transform us from the inside out, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. And this is the purpose of Paul's prayer. This is the purpose of his prayer on our behalf, that the awesome presence of God might come into our lives and his impact transform us into what God had always intended for us, of us, from before the beginning of creation. Consider when God created man and woman, he just stepped back and said, this is good. He looked down and he saw that his intent for humanity had always been to be in an unobstructed personal relationship with him so that would result in pure joy in everything we do because it's for his glory. But unfortunately, we screwed it up. And then he sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ, with good news or the gospel 
that, that if we believe that Christ is the Son of God and we come to accept the gift of his redemptive act on our behalf on the cross, if we allow this God to enter into our lives, if we allow this Spirit to fill us with his power in our inner being, we'll be transformed. So this is a prayer first for the power to grasp the enormity of God's love for us. It's a prayer that we might be transformed by being filled with the fullness of God. The last point in this is that this is a prayer for us to live transformed by, with, and through Christ, through the church. In chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In verse 18, Paul prays that we might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. And in verses 20 and 21, Paul prays now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So I started today's message sharing a bit about my journey away from the church, away from God. I spent a lot of years looking back, creating different idols, allowing other things in my life to take priority. Uh, it was work, uh, social justice issues were a big thing. I was a social worker back in the day. Um, my friends, uh, even you know, you know, alcohol, many things, everything took priority over the idea of even seeking God. Now, I have to say, I wasn't an evil guy. Well, maybe theologically speaking, I was evil. But ultimately, I wasn't a bad guy. I, I was just an discontent. There were a lot of, you know, fun days, fun times, good friends, but I was incomplete. And I can tell you that there are probably many funny stories that I should or maybe should not tell from those years but I had no joy. And it wasn't until I met and married my wife and we moved to San Francisco that I started to experience, and it was through the church that God had divinely led us to in San Francisco, that I started to experience the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love for us, for me. It was through this church whose members were rooted and grounded in the love of Christ that I started to understand and be transformed into someone that was no longer seeking my own will and my own desire, but somebody who was seeking God's will and God's desire and starting to grow in faithfulness. The thing is, I didn't come to this realization until it was a little late. I didn't come to an understanding of how God was using this church to transform me until I realized God was calling me and Suzette to leave San Francisco and come to Chicago. 
and looking back, I can see the signs of how God was using the church in such a blatant way. We had a, uh, a sister in our small group. Um, she had been battling leukemia, terminal cancer, since she was in her mid-20s. She's the reason I shaved my head the very first time. And before her 30th birthday, after every single attempt at treatment had failed, she was about to go into an experimental drug treatment in her last attempt to remove the cancer. And I very specifically remember that day because we gathered around her on our knees and we just started to pray. God, if it's your will, please provide a miracle and save our sister. And I remember very specifically that day, that night we prayed around her because it was a day that all of us were starting to realize that it was a very real possibility that God was going to bring her home. And I just remember also praying, God, if that's the case, let her be filled with your peace. Thankfully, the miracle did happen, but my conversations with her wasn't about the miracle. Before, during, and after that episode, it was about the church and how in spite of the pain and the depression and everything else that could have just consumed her, it was because we as a small group, we as a church just surrounded her constantly with love and prayer and time that she was able to see God in her own life because she saw God in our lives. Another brother of ours from the church, unfortunately, he was taken home to be with God. He was diagnosed with an illness that nobody understood, and within weeks of his diagnosis, he passed away. But I remember we as a church gathered together and said, we're going to spend time, we're going to encourage him, we're going to pray with him. And so we all came to that, church, uh, to that hospital, taking turns just to sit with him, holding his hand, praying with him, being with him until he passed away. And sitting in the room with him the entire time was his brother, who was not a Christian, just staring at us and going, who are these weird people? Not realizing it was through the church that the manifold wisdom, the manifold beauty of God was being presented to him. So much so that he had no choice but to ask, what is this thing? What is it that's driving these strangers to come into my brother's room and to deal with this amazing pain that he's going through and just pray? He didn't understand it. So he sought it out. And as a result, he came to know Christ himself. Every year when Suzette and I would leave for Zambia, whether we were leading a team or going on our own, over a hundred members of our church would gather with us at San Francisco International Airport, causing havoc, but encouraging us to remind us that we are going to advance the gospel, that we are going because we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we are a body united together. And though we might be going physically alone, we are not going spiritually alone. And with God behind us and with the church praying for us, we are going to Zambia to encourage those who have so little and in need of so much, needing to see and experience the love of God. And with all these experiences, looking back, the day that we had to say goodbye to our church in, in uh, San Francisco, 
was, um, was the hardest day of our lives. It was, I remember standing in our church over multiple services for hours, I think starting around uh, 9 a.m. until 4, just tearfully hugging and saying goodbye to hundreds, it's a very big church, hundreds of men and women. The church that had helped us grow in our faithfulness, in our understanding of the gospel. And that's the way it should be, by the way. It should hurt. It should hurt to pull apart a part of your body. We are one. We are one body united in one spirit. So for us to be ripped away, even if it is for God's will and God's kingdom, that process is going to hurt. It's going to be painful. But God's intent, God's design, is for the body of Christ to allow you and me and the world to see what it is to be rooted and grounded in Christ's love. The communion of sin. God's design and God's intent is for the communion of saints to allow you and me and the world to see what it is to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. God's design and his intent is for this divine institution created by God for his glory and for his kingdom to allow you and me and the world to see what it is to be filled with all the fullness of our Father in heaven, waiting for us in our eternal home. The sadness that weighed on us is soon turned to, to fear. I have a feeling for some of you who know, Jake, Tatiana, Sam, three members of the Wicker Park community that were recently called to leave Chicago, I have a feeling that they're feeling the same sadness and fear themselves. The question of, what's next, God? What's going to happen? For Suzette and I, Wicker Park happened. And uh, we became a witness to a church that is rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Suzette and I became participants of a body of believers that has no dividing wall separating the two. One body united together in one spirit. We are here divinely called to one hope in one Lord, in one faith, in one baptism, in one Father. And now... We, and I hope you, are called to become a brother and a sister to this family. We are called to become a brother and sister to a family rooted in the awesome love of Christ. And we're not only wanting to receive the abundant glory of Christ because of the love that you continue to show us, but we want to be used by God so that Wicker Park, so that this church, that this divine institution, we want to be used by God to bring our family here to fully experience and be filled with all the fullness of God.
I'm going to ask the uh, worship team to go ahead and start making their way up here. I'm just going to share a really quick story um, and then close us. And so Suzette and I were walking back home from somewhere. I'm not sure where. Just as I have no ability to remember names, I have no sense of direction. I might have grown up in Chicago, but I cannot find my way anywhere at all. Um, Suzette is exactly the opposite. So Suzette and I were walking home from somewhere. The more accurate statement would be, I was following Suzette home from somewhere, and suddenly we're passing Pritzker, this school. And Suzette turns to me, like I'm a child, and says, do you know where we are now? I was like, yeah, I do. We're at church. And I can always find my way home from church. You see, Wicker Park, Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus is my prayer for the church of the beloved in Wicker Park. And I hope it might, you might consider making it yours too. Because my prayer for Wicker Park is that you, is that we will receive the power to know the love of God, a love, the enormity of his love for us. My prayer for Wicker Park is that we might be filled with all the fullness of God by becoming a dwelling place for God. And my prayer for Wicker Park is that we will live together as a family transformed by God in Christ Jesus through the church for his glory. Because real transformation for real people is through divine intervention. And God's design is for his divine institution to be a part of that divine intervention. For the church, for Wicker Park, to allow us as a community to get a taste for, a flavor of what our eternal home with our glorious Father is like. So that together, as a family, as a church, we might be able to proclaim together that we can always find our way home to our eternal home from church. Let's pray.